The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Chapter 10 of The Last of the Plainsman by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last of the Plainsman by Zane Gray. Chapter 10 Success and Failure. At last the marble in the north dimmed, the obscure gray shade lifted, the hope in the south brightened, and the mercury climbed, reluctantly, with a tyrant's hate to relinquish power. Spring weather at twenty-five below zero. On April twelfth, a small band of Indians made their appearance. Of the dog tribe were they an off-cast of the great slaves, according to Ray, and as motley, staring, and starved as the yellow knives. But they were friendly, which presupposed ignorance of the white hunters, and Ray persuaded the strongest brave to accompany them as guide northward after musk oxen. On April 16th, having given the Indians several caribou carcasses and assuring them that the cabin was protected by white spirits, Ray and Jones, each with sled and train of dogs, started out after their guide, who was similarly equipped over the glistening snow toward the north. They made sixty miles the first day and pitched their Indian teepee on the shores of Artillery Lake. Traveling northeast, they covered its white waste of one hundred miles in two days. Then a day due north, over rolling, monotonously snowy plain, devoid of rock, tree, or shrub, brought them into a country of the strangest, queerest little spruce trees, very slender, and none of them over fifteen feet in height, a primeval forest of saplings. Tichin Nichola, said the guide. Land of sticks little, translated Ray. An occasional reindeer was seen, and numerous foxes and hares trotted off into the woods, convincing more curiosity than fear. All were silver-white, even the reindeer, at a distance, taking the hue of the north. Once a beautiful creature, unblemished as the snow, it trod, ran up a ridge, and stood watching the hunters. It resembled a monster dog, only was inexpressibly more wild-looking. "'Oh, ho, oh, there you are!' cried Ray, reaching for his Winchester. Fuller wolf, them's the white devil we'll have hell with!' As if the wolf understood, he lifted his white, sharp head and uttered a bark or howl that was like nothing so much as a haunting, unearthly mourn. The animal then merged into the white, as if he were really a spirit of the world whence his cry seemed to come. In this ancient forest of youthful-appearing trees, the hunters cut firewood to the full carrying capacity of the sleds. For five days the Indian guide drove his dogs over the smooth crust and on the sixth day, about noon, halting in a hollow, he pointed to tracks in the snow and called out, Egetir, Egetir, Egetir. 
The hunters saw sharply defined hoof marks, not unlike the tracks of reindeer, except that they were longer. The teepee was set up on the spot, and the dogs unharnessed. The Indian led the way with the dogs, and Ray and Jones followed, slipping over the hard crust without sinking in and traveling swiftly. Soon the guide pointed again and let out a cry, Dear! at the same moment loosing the dogs. Some few hundred yards down the hollow, a number of large black animals, not unlike the shaggy, humpy buffalo, lumbered over the snow. Jones echoed Ray's yell and broke into a run, easily distancing the puffing giant. The musk oxen squared round to the dogs and were soon surrounded by the yelping pack. Jones came up to find six old bulls uttering grunts of rage and shaking ram-like horns at their tormentors. Notwithstanding that, this for Jones was his accumulation of years of desire, the crowning moment, the climax and fruition of long-harbored dreams. He halted before the tame and helpless beasts, with joy not unmixed with pain. "'It will be murder,' he exclaimed. "'It's like shooting down sheep.' Ray came crashing up behind him and yelled, "'Get busy. We need fresh meat, and I want the skins.' The bulls succumbed to well-directed shots, and the Indian and Ray hurried back to camp with the dogs to fetch the sleds while Jones examined with warm interest the animals he had wanted to see all his life. He found the largest bull approached within a third of the size of a buffalo. He was of a brownish-black color and very like a large woolly ram. His head was broad, with sharp, small ears. The horns had wide and flattened bases and lay flat on the head, to run down back of the eyes, then curve forward to a sharp point. Like the bison, the muckscocks, had short, heavy limbs, covered with very long hair and small, hard hooves, with hairy tufts inside the curve of bone, which probably served as pads or checks, to hold the hoof firm on ice. His legs seemed out of proportion to his body. Two musk oxen were loaded on a sled and hauled to camp in one trip. Skinning them was but a short work for such expert hands. All the choice cuts of meat were saved. No time was lost in broiling a steak which they found sweet and juicy, with a flavor of musk that was disagreeable. "'Now, Ray, for the calves,' exclaimed Jones, and then we're homeward bound. "'I hate to tell this redskin,' replied Ray. "'He'll be like the others. But it ain't likely he'll desert us here. He's far from his base, with nothing but that old musket.' Ray then commanded the attention of the brave, and began to mingle the great slave and yellow-knife languages. Of this mixture, Jones knew but a few words. Agatir Nietzsche, which Ray kept repeating. He knew, however, meant muskox and little. The guide stared, suddenly appeared to get Ray's meaning, and vigorously shook his head and gazed at Jones in fear and horror. Following this came an action as singular as inexplicable. Slowly rising, he faced the north, lifted his hand, and remained statuesque in his immobility. Then he began deliberately packing his blankets and traps on his sled, which had not been unhitched from the train of dogs. Jacoe de Chola, he said, and pointed south. Jacoe de Chola, echoed Ray. The damned Indian said, wife sticks none. He's going to quit us. What do you think of that? His wife's out of wood. Jacoe, out of wood. And here we are, two days from the Arctic Ocean. Jones, the damned heathen, don't go back. The trapper coolly cocked his rifle. The savage, who plainly saw and understood the action, never flinched. He turned his breast to Ray, 
and there was nothing in his demeanor to suggest his relation to a craven tribe. "'Good heavens, Ray! Don't kill him!' exclaimed Jones, knocking up the leveled rifle. "'Why not, I'd like to know?' demanded Ray, as if he were considering the fate of a threatening beast. "'I reckon it'd be a bad thing for us to let him go.' "'Let him go,' said Jones. "'We are here on the ground. We have dogs and meat. We'll get our calves and reach the lake as soon as he does, and we might get there before.' Mm, "'Maybe we will,' growled Ray. No vacillation attended the Indian's mood. From a friendly guide he had suddenly been transformed into a dark, sullen savage. He refused the musk-ox meat offered by Jones, and he pointed south and looked at the white hunters as if he asked them to go with him. Both men shook their heads in answer. The savage struck his breast, a sounding blow, and with his index finger pointed at the white of the north, and shouted dramatically, Naza! 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 He then leaped upon his sled, lashed his dogs into a run, and without looking back, disappeared over a ridge. The musk-ox hunters sat long silent. Finally Ray shook his shaggy locks and roared, oh, Ho, ho, jock away out of wood, jock away out of wood, jock away out of wood. On a day following the desertion, Jones found tracks to the north of the camp, making a broad trail in which were numerous little imprints that sent him flying back to get Ray and the dogs. Musk oxen in great numbers had passed in the night, and Jones and Ray had not trailed the herd a mile before they had it in sight. When the dogs burst into full cry, the musk oxen climbed a high knoll and squared about to give battle. "'Calves! Calves! Calves!' cried Jones. "'Hold back! Hold back! It's a big herd, and they'll show fight.' As good fortune would have it, the herd split up into several sections, and one part, hard-pressed by the dogs, ran down the knoll to be cornered under the lee of a bank. The hunters, seeing the small number, hurried again upon them to find three cows and five badly frightened little calves backed against a bank of snow, with small red eyes fastened on the barking, snapping dogs. To a man of Jones's experience and skill, the capturing of the calves was a ridiculously easy piece of work. The cows tossed their heads, watched the dogs, and forgot their young. The first cast of the lasso settled over the neck of a little fellow. Jones hauled him out over the slippery snow and laughed as he bound the hairy legs. In less time than he had taken to capture one buffalo calf, with half the effort, he had all the little musk oxen bound fast. Then he signaled his feet by peeling out an Indian yell of victory. "'Buff, we got him!' cried Ray. "'And now for the hell of it, getting them home. I'll fetch the sleds.' You might as well down that best cow for me. I can use another skin. Of all Jones's prizes of captured wild beasts, which numbered nearly every species common to western North America, he took greatest pride in the little musk oxen. In truth, so great had been his passion to capture some of these rare and inaccessible mammals that he considered the day's work the fulfillment of his life's purpose. He was happy. Never had he been so delighted as when, the very evening of their captivity, the musk oxen, evincing no particular fear of him, began to dig with sharp hooves into the snow for moss. And they found moss and ate it, which solved Jones's greatest problem. He had hardly dared to think how to feed them. And here they were, picking sustenance out of the frozen snow. "'Ray, will you look at that? Ray, will you look at that?' he kept repeating. See, they're hunting for feed. 
and the giant, with his rare smile, watched him play with the calves. They were about two and a half feet high, and resembled long-haired sheep. The ears and horn were undiscernible, and their color considerably lighter than that of the matured beasts. No sense of fear of man, said the life-student of animals, but they shrink from the dogs. In packing for the journey south, the captives were strapped on the sleds. This circumstance necessitated a sacrifice of meat and wood, which brought grave, doubtful shakes of Ray's great head. Days of hastening over the icy snow, with short hours of sleep and rest, passed before the hunters awoke to the consciousness that they were lost. The meat they had packed had gone to feed themselves and the dogs. Only a few sticks of wood were left. "'Better kill a calf and cook meat while we've got a little wood left,' suggested Ray. "'Kill one of my calves, I'd starve first, cried Jones. The hungry giant said no more. They headed southwest. All about them glared the grim monotony of the Arctics. No rock or bush or tree made a welcome mark upon the hoary plain. Wonderland of frost, white marble desert, infinitude of gleaming silences. Snow began to fall, making the dog flounder, obliterating the sun by which they traveled. They camped to wait for clearing weather. Biscuits soaked in tea made their meal. At dawn, Jones crawled out of the teepee. The snow had ceased. But where were the dogs? He yelled in alarm. Then little mounds of white scattered here and there became animated, heaved, rocked, and rose to fall to pieces, exposing the dogs. Blankets of snow had been their covering. Ray had ceased his jackaway out of wood for a reiterated question, Where are the wolves? Lost, replied Jones in hollow humor. Near the close of that day in which they had resumed travel from the crest of a ridge, they descried a long, low, undulating dark line. It proved to be the forest of the little sticks, where with grateful assurance of fire and of soon finding their old trail, they made camp. We've four biscuits left and enough tea for one drink each, said Ray. I calculate we're two hundred miles from Great Slave Lake. Where are the wolves? At that moment the night wind wafted through the forest a long, haunting morn. The calves shifted uneasily, the dogs raised sharp noses to sniff the air, and Ray, settling back against a tree, cried out, Ho, ho! Again the savage sound, a keen, wailing note, with the hunger of the Northland in it, broke the cold silence. "'You'll see a pack of real wolves in a minute,' said Ray. Soon a swift pattering of feet down a forest slope brought him to his feet with a curse to reach a brawny hand for his rifle. White streaks crossed the black of the tree trunks. Then indistinct forms, the color of snow, swept up, spread out, and streaked to and fro. Jones thought the great gaunt pure white beast the spectral werewolves of Ray's fantasy, for they were silent, and silent wolves must belong to dreams only. Oh, yelled Ray, there's green fire eyes for you, Buff. Hell itself ain't nothing to these white devils. Get the calves in the teepee and stand ready to lose the dogs, for we've got to fight. Raising his rifle, he opened fire upon the white foe. A struggling, rustling sound followed the shots, but whether it was the threshing about of wolves dying in agony or the fighting of the fortunate ones over those shot could not be ascertained in the confusion. Following his example, Jones also fired rapidly on the other side of the teepee. 
The same inarticulate, silently rustling rustle succeeded his volley. "'Wait!' cried Ray. "'Be sparing of cartridges.' The dogs strained at their chains and bravely bayed the wolves. The hunters heaped logs and brush on the fire, which, blazing up, sent a bright light far into the woods. On the outer edge of the circle moved the white, restless, gliding forms. "'They're more afraid of fire than us,' said Jones. So it proved. When the fire burned and crackled, they kept well in the background. The hunters had a long respite from serious anxiety, during which time they collected all the available wood at hand. But at midnight, when this had been mostly consumed, the wolves grew bold again. "'Have you any shots left for the forty-five ninety, besides what's in the magazine?' asked Ray. "'Yes, good handful. Well, get busy.' With careful aim, Jones emptied the magazine into the gray, gliding, groping mass. The same rustling, shuffling, almost silent strife ensued. Ray, there's something uncanny about those brutes, a silent pack of wolves. Oh, rolled the giant's answer through the woods. For the present, the attack appeared to have been effectually blocked, the hunters sparingly adding a little to their fast-diminishing pile of fuel to the fire decided to lie down for much-needed rest, but not for sleep. How long they lay there, cramped by the calves, listening for stealthy steps, neither could tell. It might have been moments, and it might have been hours. All at once came a rapid rush of pattering feet, succeeded by a chorus of angry barks, then a terrible commingling of savage snarls, growls, snaps, and yelps. "'Out!' yelled Ray. "'They're on the dogs!' Jones pushed his cocked rifle ahead of him and straightened up outside the teepee. A wolf, large as a panther and white as the gleaming snow, sprang at him. Even as he discharged his rifle right against the breast of the beast, he saw its dripping jaws, its wicked green eyes, like spurts of fire, and felt its hot breath. It fell at its feet and writhed in a death struggle. Slender bodies of black and white, whirling and tussled together, sent out fiendish uproar. Ray threw a blazing stick of wood among them which sizzled as it met the furry coats, and brandishing another, he ran into the thick of the fight. Unable to stand the proximity of fire, the wolves bolted and loped off into the woods. "'What a huge brute!' exclaimed Jones, dragging the one he had shot into the light. It was a superb animal, thin, supple, strong, with a coat of frosty fur, very long and fine. Ray began at once to skin it, remembering that he hoped to find other pelts in the morning. Though the wolves remained in the vicinity of camp, none ventured near. The dogs moaned and whined. Their restlessness increased as dawn approached, and when the gray light came, Jones found that some of them had been badly lacerated by the fangs of the wolves. Ray hunted for dead wolves and found not so much as a piece of white fur. Soon the hunters were speeding southward. Other than a disposition to fight among themselves, the dogs showed no evil effects of the attack. They were lashed to their best speed, for Ray said the white rangers of the north would never quit their trail. All day the men listened for the wild, lonesome, haunting mourn, but it came not. A wonderful halo of white and gold, that Ray called a sun-dog, hung in the sky all afternoon, and dazzlingly bright over the dazzling world of snow, circled and glowed a mocking sun, brother of the desert mirage, beautiful illusion, smiling cold out of the polar blue. The first pale evening star twinkled in the east when the hunters made camp on the shore of Artillery Lake. At dusk the clear silent air opened to the sound of a long, haunting moan. 
Ho, 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 called Ray. His hoarse, deep voice rang defiance of the foe. While he built a fire before the tepee, Jones strode up and down, suddenly to whip out his knife and make for the tame little musk oxen, now digging in the snow. Then he reeled abruptly and held out the blade to Ray. "'What for?' "'We've got to eat,' said Jones, "'and I can't kill one of them.' "'I can't, so you do it.' "'Kill one of our calves?' roared Ray. "'Not till hell freezes over. I ain't commenced to get hungry. Besides, the wolves are going to eat us, calves and all.' Nothing more was said. They ate their last biscuit. Jones packed the calves away in the teepee and turned to the dogs. All day they had worried him. Something was amiss with them, and even as he went among them a fierce fight broke out. Jones saw it was unusual, for the attacked dogs showed craven fear, and the attacking ones a howling, savage intensity that surprised him. Then one of the vicious brutes rolled his eyes, frost at the mouth, shuddered and leapt in his harness, vented a hoarse howl, and fell back, shaking and retching. "'My God, Ray!' cried Jones in horror. Come here, look. That dog is dying of rabies, hydrophobia. The white wolves have hydrophobia. If you ain't right, exclaimed Ray, I've seen a dog die of that once, and he acted like this. And that one ain't all. Look, Buff, look at them green eyes. Didn't I say the white wolves would hell? We'll have to kill every dog we got. Jones shot the dog, and soon afterwards three more that manifested the signs of the disease. It was an awful situation. To kill all the dogs meant simply to sacrifice his life and raise. It meant abandoning hope of ever reaching the cabin. Then to risk being bitten by one of the poisoned, maddened brutes, to risk the most horrible of agonizing deaths. That was even worse. Ray, we've got one chance, cried Jones, with pale face. Can you hold the dogs one by one while I muzzle them? Oh, ho, replied the giant placing his bowie knife between his teeth. With gloved hands, he seized and dragged one of the dogs to the campfire. The animal whined and protested, but showed no ill spirit. Jones muzzled his jaws tightly with strong cords. Another and another were tied up. Then one which tried to snap at Jones was nearly crushed by the giant's grip. The last, a surly brute, broke out into mad ravings the moment he felt the touch of Jones's hands. And writhing, frothing, he snapped Jones's sleeve. Ray jerked him loose and held him in the air with one arm, while with the other he swung the bowie. They hauled the dead dogs out on the snow, and returning to the fire sat down to await the cry they expected. Presently as darkness fastened down tight, it came the same cry, wild, haunting mourning, but for hours it was not repeated. "'Better get some rest,' said Ray. "'I'll call you if they come.' Jones dropped to sleep as he touched his blanket. Morning dawned for him to find the great, dark, shadowy figure of the giant nodding over the fire. "'How's this? Why didn't you call me?' demanded Jones. "'The wolves only fought a little over the dead dogs.' On the instant Jones saw a wolf sulking up the bank. Throwing up his rifle, which he had carried out of the teepee, he took a snapshot at the beast. It ran off on three legs, to go out of sight over the bank. Jones scrambled up the steep, slippery place and upon arriving at the ridge, which took several moments of hard work, he looked everywhere for the wolf. In a moment he saw the animal, standing still some hundred or more paces down a hollow. With the quick report of Jones's second shot, the wolf fell and rolled over. The hunter ran to the spot to find the wolf was dead. 
Taking hold of a front paw, he dragged the animal over the snow to camp. Ray began to skin the animal when suddenly exclaimed, "'This fellow's hind foot is gone.' "'That's strange. I saw it hanging by the skin as the wolf ran up the bank. I'll look for it.' By the bloody trail on the snow, he returned to the place where the wolf had fallen, and thence back to the spot where its leg had been broken by the bullet. He discovered no sign of the foot. "'Didn't find it, did you?' said Ray. "'No, it appears odd to me. The snow is so hard the foot could not have sunk.' "'Well, the wolf ate his foot, that's what,' returned Ray. "'Look at them teeth marks.' "'Is it possible?' Jones stared at the leg Ray held up. "'Yes, it is. These wolves are crazy at times. You've seen that. And the smell of blood is nothing else, mind you, in my opinion, made him eat his own foot. We'll cut him open.' Impossible as the thing seemed to Jones, and he could not but believe further evidence of his own eyes. It was even stranger to drive a train of mad dogs. Yet that was what Ray, and he did, and lashed them, beat them to cover many miles of the long day's journey. Rabies had broken out in several dogs so alarmingly that Jones had to kill them at the end of the run, and hardly had the sound of the shots died when faint and far away, but clear as a bell, bade on the wind the same haunting mourn of a trailing wolf. "'Oh, ho! Where are the wolves?' cried Ray. A waiting, watching, sleepless night followed. Again the hunters faced the south. Hour after hour, riding, running, walking, they urged the poor jaded poisoned dogs. At dark they reached the head of Artillery Lake. Ray placed the teepee between two huge stones. Then the hungry hunters, tired, grim, silent, desperate, awaited the familiar cry. It came on the cold wind, the same haunting morn, dreadful in its significance. Absence of fire inspired the weary wolves. Out of the pale gloom gaunt white forms emerged, agile and stealthy, slipping on velvet-padded feet closer, closer, closer. The dogs wailed in terror. "'Into the teepee!' yelled Ray. Jones plunged in after his comrade. The despairing howls of the dogs, drowned in more savage, frightful sounds, knelled one tragedy and foretold a more terrible one. Jones looked out to see a white mass, like leaping waves of a rapid. "'Pump lead into that!' cried Ray. Rapidly Jones emptied his rifle into the white fray. The mass split. Gaunt wolf leaped high to fall back dead. Others wriggled and limped away. Others dragged their hind quarters. Others darted at the teepee. "'No more cartridges!' yelled Jones. The giant grabbed an axe and barred the door of the teepee. Crash! The heavy iron cleaved the skull of the first brute. Crash! It lamed the second. Then Ray stood in the narrow passage between the rocks, waiting with uplifted axe. A shaggy white demon snapped his jaws, sprang like a dog. A sodden thudding blow met him, and he slunk away without a cry. Another rabid beast launched his white body at the giant. Like a flash the axe descended. In agony the wolf fell to spin round and round, running on his hind legs while his head and shoulders and forelegs remained in the snow. His back was broken. Jones crouched in the opening of the teepee, knife in hand. He doubted his senses. This was a nightmare. He saw two wolves leap at once. He heard the crash of the axe. He saw one wolf go down, and the other slip under the swinging weapon to grasp the giant's hip. Jones heard the rend of cloth and then he pounced like a cat 
and drove his knife into the body of the beast. Another nimble foe lunged at Ray to sprawl broken and limp from the iron. It was a silent fight. The giant shut the way to his comrade and the calves. He made no outcry. He needed but one blow for every beast, magnificent. He wielded death and faced it, silent. He brought the white wild dogs of the north down with lightning blows, and when no more sprang to the attack, down on the frigid silence he rolled his cry, Oh! Ray, Ray, how is it with you? called Jones, climbing out. Torn coat, no more, my lad. Three of the poor dogs were dead. The fourth and last gasped at the hunters and died. The wintry night became a thing of half-conscious past, a dream to the hunters, manifesting its reality only by the stark, stiff bodies of wolves white in the gray morning. "'If we can eat, we'll make the cabin,' said Ray. "'But the dogs and wolves are poison.' "'Shall I kill a calf?' asked Jones. "'Oh, when the hell freezes over, if we must.' Jones found one forty-five ninety cartridge in all the outfit, and with that in the chamber of his rifle once more struck south. Spruce trees began to show on the barrens, and caribou trails roused the hopes and the hearts of the hunters. "'Look, in the spruces,' whispered Jones, dropping the rope of his sled. Among the black trees gray objects moved. "'Caribou,' said Ray. "'Hurry, shoot. Don't miss.' But Jones waited. He knew the value of the last bullet. He had a hunter's patience. When the caribou came out in an open space, Jones whistled. It was then the rifle grew set and fixed. It was then the red fire belched forth. At four hundred yards the bullet took some fraction of time to strike. What a long time it was! Then both hunters heard the spiteful spat of the lead. Caribou fell, jumped up, ran down the slope, and fell again to rise no more. An hour of rest with fire and meat changed the world to the hunters, still glistening, it yet had lost its bitter cold, its death-like clutch. "'What's this?' cried Jones. Moccasin tracks of different sizes, all towing north, arrested the hunters. "'Pointed north. Wonder what that means?' Ray plodded on, doubtfully shaking his head. Night again. Clear, cold, silver, starlit, silent night. The hunters rested, listening ever for the haunting morn. Day again. White, passionless, monotonous, silent day. The hunters traveled on, 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 ever listening for the haunting morn. Another dusk found them within thirty miles of their cabin. Only one more day now. Ray talked of his furs, of the splendid white furs he could not bring. Jones talked of his little musk ox and calves, and joyfully watched them dig for moss in the snow. Vigilance relaxed that night. Outworn nature rebelled, and both hunters slept. Ray awoke first, and kicking off the blankets went out. His terrible roar of rage made Jones fly to his side, under the very shadow of the teepee where the little musk oxen had been tethered. They lay stretched out pathetically on crimson snow, stiff, stone-cold dead. Moccasin tracks told the story of the tragedy. Jones leaned against his comrade. The giant raised his huge fist. Jack away out of wood! Jack away out of wood! Then he choked the north wind blowing through the thin, dark, weird spruce trees, moaned and seemed to sigh, Naza, Naza, Naza. End of chapter 10
Chapter Eleven of the Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. The Last Plainsman by Zane Gray. Chapter Eleven. On to the Seawash. Who all was doing the talking last night? Asked Frank next morning, when we were having a late breakfast. Cause I've a joke on somebody. Jim, he talks in his sleep often, and last night, after you did finally get settled down, Jim, he up in his sleep and says, Sure, he's windy as hell. Sure, he's windy as hell. At this cruel exposure of his subjective wanderings, Jim showed extreme humiliation, but Frank's eyes fairly snapped with the fun he got out of telling it. The genial foreman loved a joke. The week's day at Oak, in which we all became thoroughly acquainted, had presented Jim as always the same quiet character, easy, slow, silent, lovable. In his brother cowboy, however, we had discovered in addition to his fine, frank, friendly spirit, an overwhelming fondness for playing tricks. This boy's mischievousness, distinctly Arizonan, reached its acme whenever it tended in the direction of our serious leader. Lawson had been dispatched on some mysterious errand, about which my curiosity was all in vain. The order of the day was leisurely to get in readiness and pack for our journey to the Siwash on the morrow. I watered my horse, played with the hounds, knocked about the cliffs, returned to the cabin, and lay down on my bed. Jim's hands were white with flour. He was kneading dough and had several low, flat pans on the table. Wallace and Jones strolled in, and later Frank, and they all took various positions before the fire. I saw Frank, with the quickness of a sleight-of-hand performer, slip one of the pans of dough on the chair Jones had placed by the table. Jim did not see the action. Jones and Wallace's backs were turned to Frank, and he did not know I was in the cabin. The conversation continued on the subject of Jones' big bay horse, which, hobbles and all, had gotten ten miles from camp the night before. "'Better count his ribs than his tracks,' said Frank, and went on talking as easily and naturally as if he had not been expecting a very entertaining situation. But no one could ever foretell Colonel Jones's actions. He showed every intention of seating himself in the chair, then walked over to his pack to begin searching for something or other. Wallace, however, promptly took the seat and what began to be funnier than strange, he did not get up. Not unlikely this circumstance was owing to the fact that several of the rude chairs had soft layers of old blankets tacked on them. Whatever were Frank's internal emotions, he presented a remarkably placid and commonplace exterior. But when Jim began to search for the missing pan of dough, the joker slowly sagged in his chair. "'Sure, that beats hell,' said Jim. "'And three pans of dough.' Could the pup have taken one? Wallace rose to his feet, and the bread pan clattered to the floor, with a clang and a clank, evidently protesting against the indignity it had suffered. But the dough stayed with Wallace, a great white conspicuous spot on his corduroys. Jim, Frank, and Jones all saw it at once. Why, Mr. Wallace, you said in the dough, exclaimed Frank in a queer, strangled voice. Then he exploded while Jim fell over the table. It seemed that these two Arizona rangers, matured men though they were, would die of convulsions. I laughed with him, and so did Wallace, while he brought his bone-handled bowie knife into novel use. 
Buffalo Jones never cracked a smile, though he did remark about the waste of good flour. Frank's face was a study for a psychologist when Jim actually apologized to Wallace for being so careless with his pans. I did not betray Frank, but I resolved to keep a still closer watch on him. It was partially because of this uneasy sense of his trickiness in the fringe of my mind that I made a discovery. My sleeping bag rested on a raised platform in one corner. At a favorable moment, I examined the bag. It had not been tampered with, but I noticed a string running out through a chink between the logs. I found it came from a thick layer of straw under my bed, and had been tied to the end of a flatly coiled lasso. Leaving the thing as it was, I went outside and carelessly chased the hounds round the cabin. The string stretched along the logs to another chink, where it returned into the cabin at a point near where Frank slept. No great power of deduction was necessary to acquaint me with full details of the plot to spoil my slumbers, so I patiently awaited developments. Lawson rode in near sundown, with the carcasses of two beasts of some species hanging over his saddle. It turned out that Jones had planned a surprise for Wallace and me, and it could hardly have been a more enjoyable one, considering the time and place. We knew he had a flock of Persian sheep on the south side of Buckskin, but had no idea it was within striking distance of Oak. Lawson had that day hunted up the shepherd and his sheep to return to us with two sixty-pound Persian lambs. We feasted at supper-time on meat which was sweet, juicy, and very tender, and of as rare a flavor as that of the Rocky Mountain sheep. My state after supper was one of huge enjoyment, and with intense interest I waited Frank's first spar for an opening. It came presently, in a lull of the conversation. "'Saw a big rattler run under the cabin today,' he said, as if speaking of one of old Baldy's shoes. "'I tried to get a whack at him, but he used the way too quick.' "'Sure, I've seen him often,' put in Jim. "'Good old honest Jim.' led away by his trickster comrade. It was very plain, so I was to be frightened by snakes. These old canyon beds are ideal dens for rattlesnakes, chimed in my scientific California friend. I have found several dens, but did not molest him, as this is a particularly dangerous time of the year to meddle with reptiles. Quite likely there's a den under the cabin. While he made his remarkable statement, he had the grace to hide his face in a huge puff of smoke. He, too, was in the plot. I waited for Jones to come out with some ridiculous theory or fact concerning the particular species of snake, but as he did not speak, I concluded they had wisely left him out of the secret. After mentally debating a moment, I decided, as it was a very harmless joke, to help Frank to the fulfillment of his enjoyment. Rattlesnakes! I exclaimed. Heavens! I'd die if I heard one, let alone seeing it. A big rattler jumped at me one day, and I've never recovered from the shock. Plainly, Frank was delighted to hear of my antipathy and my unfortunate experience, and he proceeded to expatriate on the viciousness of rattlesnakes, particularly those of Arizona. If I had believed the succeeding stories, emanating from the fertile brains of those three fellows. I should have made certain that Arizona canyons were Brazilian jungles. Frank's parting shot, 
sent in a mellow, kind voice, was the best point in the whole trick. Now I'd be nervous if I had a sleeping bag like yours, because it's just the place for a rattler to ooze into. In the confusion and dim light of bedtime, I contrived to throw the end of my lasso over the horn of a saddle hanging on the wall, with the intention of augmenting the noise I soon expected to create, and I placed my automatic rifle in a thirty-eight S&W special within easy reach of my hand. Then I crawled into my bag and composed myself to listen. Frank soon began to snore so brazenly, so fictitiously, that I wondered at the man's absorbed intensity in his joke, and I was at great pains to smother in my breast a violent burst of riotous merriment. Jones's snores, however, were real enough, and this made me enjoy the situation all the more, because if he did not show a mild surprise when the catastrophe fell, I would greatly miss my guess. I knew the three wily conspirators were wide awake. Suddenly I felt a movement in the straw under me, and a faint rustling. It was so soft, so sinuous, that if I had not known it was the lasso, I would assuredly have been frightened. I gave a little jump, such as one will make quickly in bed. Then the coil ran out from under the straw. How subtly suggestive of a snake! I made a slight outcry, a big jump, paused a moment for effectiveness, in which time Frank forgot to snore, and then let out a tremendous yell, grabbed my guns, and sent twelve thundering shots through the roof, and pulled my lasso. Crash! The saddle came down, to be followed by sounds not on Frank's program, and certainly not calculated upon by me, but they were all the more effective. I gathered that Lawson, who was not in the secret, and who was a nightmare sort of sleeper, anyway, had knocked over Jim's table with its array of pots and pans, and then, unfortunately for Jones, had kicked that innocent person in the stomach. As I lay there in my bag, the very happiest fellow in the wide world, the sound of my mirth was as the buzz of the wings of a fly to the mighty storm. Roar on roar filled the cabin. When the three hypocrites recovered sufficiently from the startling climax to calm, Lawson, who swore the cabin had been attacked by Indians, when Jones stopped roaring long enough to hear it, was only a harmless snake that had caused the trouble. We hushed to repose once more. Not, however, without hearing some trenchant remarks from the boiling colonel, anent fun and fools, and the indisputable fact that there was not a rattlesnake on Buckskin Mountain. Long after this explosion had died away, I heard or rather felt a mysterious shudder or tremor of the cabin, and I knew that Frank and Jim were shaking with silent laughter. On my own score, I determined to find if Jones, in his strange make-up, had any sense of humor or interest in life, or feeling of love that did not center and hinge on four-footed beasts. In view of the rude awakening from what, no doubt, were pleasant dreams of wonderful white and green animals, combining intelligence of man and strength of brutes, a new species creditable to his genius, I was perhaps unjust in my conviction as to his lack of humor, and as to the other question, whether or not he had any real human feeling for the creatures built in his own image, that was decided very soon and unexpectedly. The following morning, as soon as Lawson got in with the horses, we packed and started. Rather sorry was I to bid good-bye to Oak Spring. Taking the back trail of the Stewarts, we walked the horses all day up a slowly narrowing ascending canyon. 
The hounds crossed coyotes and deer trails continually, but made no break. Sounder looked up as if to say he associated painful reminiscences with certain kinds of tracks. At the head of the canyon we reached timber at about the time dusk gathered, and we located for the night. Being once again nearly nine thousand feet high, we found the air bitterly cold, making a blazing fire most acceptable. In the haste to get supper we all took a hand, and someone threw upon our tarpaulin tablecloth a tin cup of butter mixed with carbolic acid, the concoction Jones used to bathe the sore feet of the dogs. Of course I got hold of this, spread a generous portion on my hot biscuit, placed some red-hot beans on that, and began to eat like a hungry hunter. At first I thought I was only burned. Then I recognized the taste and burn of the acid and knew something was wrong. Picking up the tin, I examined it, smelled the pungent odor, and felt a queer, numb sense of fear. This lasted only for a moment, as I well knew the use and power of the acid, and had not swallowed enough to hurt me. I was about to make known my mistake in a matter-of-fact way. When it flashed over me, the accident could be made to serve a turn. "'Jones!' I cried hoarsely. "'What's in this butter?' "'Lord, you haven't eaten any of that.' "'Well, I put carbolic acid in it.' "'Oh, oh I'm poisoned. I ate nearly all of it. I'm burning. I'm dying.' With that, I continued to moan and rock to and fro and hold my stomach. Consternation preceded shock. But in the excitement of the moment, Wallace, who, though badly scared, retained his wits, made for me with a can of condensed milk. He threw me back with no gentle hand and was squeezing the life out of me to make me open my mouth. When I gave him a jab in his side, I imagined his surprise as this peculiar reception of the first aid to the injured made him hold off to take a look at me, and in this interval I contrived to whisper to him, Joke, joke, you idiot! Only shaming. Want to see if I can scare Jones and get even with Frank. Help me out. Cry, get tragic. From that moment I shall always believe that the stage lost a great tragedy in Wallace. With a magnificent gesture he threw the can of condensed milk at Jones, who was so stunned he did not try to dodge. "'Thoughtless man-murderer! It's too late!' cried Wallace, laying me back across his knees. "'It's too late! His teeth are locked! He's far gone! Poor boy! Poor boy! Who's to tell his mother?' I could see from under my hat-brim that the solemn, hollow voice had penetrated the cold exterior of the plainsman. He could not speak. He clasped and unclasped his big hands in helpless fashion. Frank was white as a sheet. This was simply delightful to me. But the expression of miserable, impotent distress on old Jim's sun-brown face was more than I could stand, and I could no longer keep up the deception. Just as Wallace cried out to Jones to pray, I wished then I had not weakened so soon. I got up and walked to the fire. Jim, I'll have another biscuit, please. His under jaw dropped. Then he nervously shoveled biscuits at me. Jones grabbed my hand and cried out with a voice that was new to me. You can eat? You're better? You'll get over it. Sure, why carbolic acid never faces me. I've often used it for rattlesnake bites. I did not tell you, but that rattler at the cabin last night actually bit me, and I used carbolic to cure the poison. Frank mumbled something about horses and faded into the gloom. As for Jones, 
He looked at me rather incredulously, and the absolute, almost childish gladness he manifested because I had been snatched from the grave made me regret my deceit and satisfied me forever on one score. On awakening in the morning I found frost half an inch thick covered my sleeping bag, whitened the ground, and made the beautiful silver spruce trees silver in hue as well as in name. We were getting ready for an early start when two riders with pack-horses, jogging after them, came down the trail from the direction of Oak Spring. They proved to be Jeff Clark, the wild horse wrangler, mentioned by the Stuarts and his helper. They were on the way into the brakes for a string of pintos. Clark was a short, heavily bearded man of jovial aspect. He said he had met the Stuarts going into Fredonia, and, being advised of our destination, had hurried to come up with us. As we did not know, except in a general way, where we were making for, the meeting was a fortunate event. Our camping site had been close to the divide, made by one of the long wooded ridges, sent off by Buckskin Mountain, and soon we were descending again. We rode half a mile down a timbered slope, and then into a beautiful flat forest of gigantic pines. Clark informed us it was a level bench some ten miles long running out over the slopes of buckskin to face the grand canyon on the south and the breaks of the siwash on the west for two hours we rode between the stately lines of trees and the hoofs of the horses gave forth no sound a long silverly grass sprinkled with smiling bluebells covered the ground except close under the pines where soft red mats invited lounging and rest we saw numerous deer great gray mule-deer, almost as large as elk. Jones said they had been crossed with elk once, which accounted for their size. I did not see a stump or a burned tree or a windfall during the ride. Clark led us to the rim of the canyon. Without any preparation, for the giant trees hid the open sky, we rode right out to the edge of the tremendous chasm. At first I did not seem to think. My faculties were benumbed. Only the pure sensorial instinct of the savage who sees, but does not feel, made me take note of the abyss. Not one of our party had ever seen the canyon from this side, and not one of us said a word. But Clark kept talking. "'Wild place this is here,' he said. "'Seldom anyone but horse-wranglers gets over this far. I've had a bunch of wild pintos down in a canyon below for two years.' I reckon you can't find no better place for camp than right here. Listen. Do you hear that rumble? That's Thunder Falls. You can only see it from one place, and that far off. But there's brooks you can get to water the horses. For that matter, you can ride up the slopes and get snow. If you can get snow close, it'd be better, for that's an all-fired bad trail down for water. Is this the cougar country the Stuarts talked about? asked Jones reckon it is cougars is as thick in here as rabbits in a spring-hole canyon i'm on the way now to bring up my pintos cougars have cost me hundreds i might say thousands of dollars i lose horses all the time and damn me gentlemen i've never raised a colt this is the greatest cougar country in the west look at those yellow crags there's where cougars stay no one ever hunted them seems to me they can't be hunted deer and wild hosses by the thousand browse here in the mountain in summer and down in the breaks in winter cougars live fat you'll find deer and wild hoss carcasses all over this country 
you'll find lion's dens full of bones. You'll find warm deer left for the coyotes. But whether you'll find the cougars, I can't say. I fetched dogs in here and tried to catch old Tom. I've put them on his trail and never saw hide nor hair of them again. Jones, it's no easy hunting here. Well, I can see that, replied our leader. I never hunted lions in such a country and never knew anyone who had. We'll have to learn how. We've the time and the dogs. All we need is the stuff in us. I hope you fellow get some cougars, and I believe you will. Whatever you do, kill old Tom. We'll catch him alive. We're not on a hunt to kill cougars, said Jones. What? exclaimed Clark, looking from Jones to us. His rugged face wore a half-smile. Jones ropes cougars and ties them up, replied Frank. I'm... He'll never rope old Tom, burst out Clark, ejecting a huge quid of tobacco. Why, man alive, it'd be the death of you to get near that old villain. I never seen him, but I've seen his tracks for five years. They're larger than any hoss tracks you ever seen. He'll weigh over three hundred, that old cougar. Here, take a look at my man's hoss. Look at his back. See them marks? Well, old Tom made them, and he made them right in camp last fall, when we were down in the canyon. The mustang to which Clark called our attention was a sleek cream and white pinto. Upon his side and back were long, regular scars, some an inch wide and bare of hair. How on earth did he get rid of the cougar? asked Jones. I don't know. Perhaps got scared of the dogs. It took that pinto a year to get well. Old Tom is a real lion. He'll kill a full-grown hoss when he wants. But a yearling colt is his special liking. You're sure to run across his trail. You'll never miss it. Well, if I find any cougar sign down in the canyon, I'll build two fires so to let you know. Though no hunter, I'm tolerably acquainted with the varmints. The deer and hosses are ranging the forest slopes now, and I think the cougars come up over the rim rock at night and go back in the mountain. Anyway, if your dogs can follow the trails, you've got sport, and more sport coming to you. But take it from me. Don't try to rope old Tom. After all our disappointments in the beginning of the expedition, our hardship on the desert, our trials with the dogs and horses, it was real pleasure to make permanent camp with wood, water, and feet at hand. A soul-stirring, ever-changing picture before us, and the certainty that we were in the wild lairs of the lions, among the lords of the crags. While we were unpacking, every now and then, I would straighten up and gaze out beyond. I knew the outlook was magnificent and sublime beyond words, but as yet I had not begun to understand it. The great pine trees, growing to the very edge of the rim, received their full quota of appreciation from me, as did the smooth, flower-decked aisles leading back into the forest. The location we selected for camp was a large glade, fifty paces or more from the precipice, far enough, the cowboys averred to, to keep our traps from being sucked down by some of the whirlpool winds, native to the spot. In the center of this glade stood a huge, gnarled, and blasted old pine, but certainly by virtue of hoary locks and bent shoulders had earned the right to stand aloof from his younger companions. Under this tree, 
we placed all our belongings, and then, as Frank so felicitously expressed it, we were free to ooze around and see things. I believe I had a sort of subconscious, selfish idea that someone would steal the canyon away from me if I did not hurry to make it mine forever. So I sneaked off and sat under a pine growing on the very rim. At first glance, I saw below me, seemingly miles away, a wide chaos of red and bluff mesas rising out of dark purple clefts. Beyond these reared a long, irregular tableland, running south almost to the extent of my vision, which I remembered Clark had called Powell's Plateau. I remembered also that he had said it was twenty miles distant, was almost that many miles long, was connected to the mainland of Buckskin Mountain by a very narrow wooded dip of land called the Saddle, and that it practically shut us out of a view of the Grand Canyon proper. If that was true, what then could be the name of the canyon at my feet? Suddenly, as my gaze wandered from point to point, it was arrested by a dark conical mountain, white-tipped, which rose in the notch of the saddle. What could it mean? Were there such things as canyon mirages? Then the dim purple of its color told of its great distance from me, and then its familiar shape told I had come into my own again. I had found my old friend once more, for in all that plateau there was only one snow-capped mountain, the San Francisco Peak, and there, a hundred and fifty, perhaps two hundred miles away, far beyond the Grand Canyon, it smiled brightly at me, as it had for days and days across the desert. Hearing Jones yelling for somebody or everybody, I jumped up to find a procession heading for a point further down the rim wall, where our leader stood waving his arms. The excitement proved to have been caused by cougar signs at the head of the trail where Clark had started down. They're here, boys. They're here, Jones kept repeating, as he showed us different tracks. The sign is not that old. Boys, tomorrow we'll get up a lion, sure as you're born. And if we do and Sounder sees him, then we've got a lion dog. I'm afraid of Don. He has a fine nose. He can run and fight. But he's been trained to deer, and maybe I can't break him. Mose is still uncertain. If old Jude only hadn't been lamed. She would be the best of the lot. But Sounder is our hope. I'm almost ready to swear by him. All this was too much for me, so I slipped off again to be alone, and this time headed for the forest. Warm patches of sunlight, like gold, brightened the ground. Dark patches of sky, like ocean blue, gleamed between the treetops. Hardly a rustle of wind in the fine-toothed green branches disturbed the quiet. When I got fully out of sight of the camp, I started to run as if I were a wild Indian. My running had no aim, just sheer mad joy of the grand old forest. The smell of pine, the wild silence and beauty, loosed a spirit in me, so it had to run. And I ran with it till the physical being failed. While resting on a fragrant bed of pine needles, endeavoring to regain control over a truant mind, trying to subdue the encroaching of the natural man on civilized man, I saw gray objects moving under the trees. I lost them, then saw them, and presently, so plainly that with delight on delight, I counted seventeen deer passed through an open arch of dark green. Rising to my feet, I ran to get round a low mound. They saw me and bounded away with prodigiously long leaps. Bringing their forefeet together, stiff-legged, under them they bounced high like rubber balls, yet they were graceful. 
The forest was so open that I could watch them for a long way, and as I circled my gaze a glimpse of something white arrested my attention. A light grayish animal appeared to be tearing at an old stump. Upon nearer view I recognized a wolf, and he scented or sighted me at the same moment and loped off into the shadows of the trees. Approaching the spot where I had marked him, I found he had been feeding from the carcass of a horse. The remains had only been partially eaten, and were of an animal of the mustang build that had evidently been recently killed. Frightful lacerations under the throat showed where a lion had taken fatal hold. Deep furrows in the ground proved how the mustang had sunk his hoofs, reared and shaken himself. I traced roughly defined tracks fifty paces to the lee of the little bank, from which I concluded the lion had sprung. I gave free rein to my imagination and saw the forest dark, silent, peopled by none but its savage Denzians. The lion crept like a shadow, crouched noiselessly down, then leaped on his sleeping or browsing prey. The lonely night stillness split to a frantic snort and scream of terror, and the stricken mustang, with his mortal enemy upon his back, dashed off with fierce, wild love of life. As he went he felt his foe crawl towards his neck on claws of fire. He saw the tawny body and the gleaming eyes. Then the cruel teeth snapped with sudden bite, and the woodland tragedy ended. On the spot I conceived an antipathy towards lions. It was born of the frightful spectacle of what had once been a glossy, prancing mustang, of the mute, sickening proof of the survival of the fittest, of the law that levels life. Upon telling my camp followers about my discovery, Jones and Wallace walked out to see it, while Jim told me the wolf I had seen was a loafer, one of the giant buffalo wolves of buckskin, and if I would watch the carcass in mornings and evenings, I would sure as hell get a plunk at him. White pine burned in a beautiful clear blue flame with no smoke, and in the center of the campfire left a golden heart, but Jones would not have any sitting up and hustled us off to bed, saying we would be blame glad of it in fifteen hours. I crawled into my sleeping bag, made a hood of my Navajo blanket, and peeping from under it, watched the fire and flickering shadows. The blaze burned down rapidly, then the stars blinked. Arizona stars would be moons in any other state. How serene, peaceful, august, infinite, and wonderfully bright. No breeze stirred the pines. The clear tinkle of the cowbells on the hobbled horses rang from near and distant parts of the forest. The prosaic bell of the meadow and the pasture brook, here in this environment, jingled out different notes, as clear, sweet musical as silver bells. End of chapter 11《Chapter Twelve of the Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Gray. Chapter Twelve. Old Tom. At daybreak, our leader routed us out. The frost mantled the ground so heavily that it looked like snow, and the rare atmosphere bit like the breath of winter. The forest stood solemn and gray. The canyon lay wrapped in vapory slumber. Hot biscuits and coffee, with a chop or two of the delicious Persian lamb meat, put a less spartan tinge on the morning. 
and gave Wallace and me more strength. We needed not incentive to leave the fire, hustle our saddles on the horses, and get in line with our impatient leader. The hounds scampered over the frost, shoving their noses at the tufts of grass and bluebells. Lawson and Jim remained in camp. The rest of us trooped southwest. A mile or so in that direction, the forest of pine ended abruptly, and a wide belt of low, scrubby oak trees, breast high to a horse, fringed the rim of the canyon and appeared to broaden out and grow wavy southward. The edge of the forest was as dark and regular as if a band of woodchoppers had trimmed it. We threaded our way through this thicket, all peering into the bisecting deer trails for cougar tracks in the dust. "'Bring dogs! Hurry!' suddenly called Jones from a thicket. We lost no time complying and found him standing in a trail, with his eyes on the sand. "'Take a look, boys. A good-sized male cougar passed here last night. "'Here, Sounder! Don! Mose! Come on!' It was a nervous, excited pack of hounds. Old Jude got to Jones first, and she sang out. Then Sounder opened his big, ringing bay, and before Jones could mount, a string of yelping dogs sailed straight for the forest. "'Who's along, boys?' yelled Frank, wheeling Spot. With the cowboy leading, we strung into the pines, and I found myself behind. Presently, even Wallace disappeared. I almost threw the reins at Satan and yelled for him to go. The result enlightened me. Like an arrow from a bow, the black shot forward. Frank had told me of his speed, that when he found his stride, it was like riding a flying feather to be on him. Jones, fearing he would kill me, had cautioned me always to hold him in, which I had done. Satan stretched out with long, graceful motions. He did not turn aside for logs, but cleared them with easy and powerful spring and he swerved only slightly for the trees. This latter, I saw at once, made the danger for me. It became a matter of saving my legs and dodging branches. The imperative need of this came to me with convincing force. I dodged a branch on one tree, only to be caught square in the middle by a snag on another. Crack! If the snag had not broken, Satan would have gone on riderless, and I would have been left hanging a pathetic and drooping monoton to the risks of the hunt. I kept ducking my head, now and then falling flat over the pommel to avoid a limb that would have brushed me off, and hugging the flanks of my horse with my knees. Soon I was at Wallace's heels, and had Jones in sight. Now and then glimpses of Frank's white horse gleamed through the trees. We began to circle toward the south, to go up and down shallow hollows, to find the pines thinning out. Then we shot out of the forest into the scrubby oak. Riding through this brush was the cruelest kind of work, but Satan kept on close to the sorrel. The hollows began to get deeper, and the ridges between them narrower. No longer could we keep a straight course. On the crest of one of these ridges we found Jones awaiting us. Judge, Teague, and Don lay panting on his feet. Plainly the colonel appeared vexed. Listen, he said, when he reined in. We complied, but did not hear a sound. Frank's beyond there some place, continued Jones, but I can't see him nor hear the hounds any more. Don and Teague split again on deer trails. Old Jude hung on the lion track, but I stopped her here. There's something I can't figure. Mose held a bee-line southwest, and he yelled seldom. Sounder gradually stopped being. Maybe Frank can tell us something. 
Jones's long drawn out signal was answered from the direction he expected, and after a little time, Frank's white horse shone out of the gray green of a ridge a mile away. This drew my attention to our position. We were on a high ridge out in the open, and I could see fifty miles of the shaggy slopes of buckskin. Southward, the gray ragged line seemed to stop suddenly, and beyond it, purple haze hung over a void I knew to be the canyon. And facing west, I came to at last to understand perfectly the meaning of the breaks in the Siwash. They were nothing more than ravines that headed up on the slopes and ran down, getting deeper and steeper, though scarcely wider, to break into the canyon. Knife-crested ridges rolled westward, wave on wave, like the billows of a sea. I appreciated that these breaks were, at their sources, little washes easy to jump across, and at their mouths a mile deep and impassable. Huge pine trees shaded these gullies, to give way to the gray growth of stunted oak, which in turn merged into the dark green of pinion. A wonderful country for deer and lions, it seemed to me, but impassable, all but impossible for a hunter. Frank soon appeared, brushing through the bending oaks, and Sounder trotted along behind him. "'Where's Mose?' inquired Jones. "'Last I heard of Mose, he was out on the brush going across the pinion flat, right for the canyon. He had a hot trail.' "'Well, we're certain for one thing. If it was a deer, he won't come back soon. And if it was a lion, he'll tree it, lose the scent, and come back. We've got to show the hounds a lion in a tree. They'd run a hot trail, bump into a tree, and then be at fault. What was wrong with Sounder? I don't know. Came back to me. We can't trust him or any of them yet. Still, maybe they're doing better than we know. The outcome of the chase so favorably started was a disappointment, which we all felt keenly. After some discussion, we turned south, intending to ride down to the rim wall and follow it back to the camp. I happened to turn once, perhaps, to look again at the far distant pink cliffs of Utah or the wave-like dome of Trumbull Mountain. When I saw Mose trailing close behind me, my yell halted the colonel. "'Well, I'll be darned,' ejaculated he, as Mose hove in sight. "'Come here, you old rascal. He was a tired dog, but had no sheepish air about him, such as he had worn when lagging in from deer chases. He wagged his tail and flopped down to pant and pant, as if to say, "'What's wrong with you guys?' "'Boys, for two cents I'd go back and put Jude on that trail.' It's just possible that Mose treat a lion. Well, I expect there's more likelihood of his chasing the lion over the rim, so we may as well keep on. The strange thing is that Sounder wasn't with Mose. There may have been two lions. You see, we are up a tree ourselves. I've known lions to run in pairs, and also a mother to keep four two-year-olds with her. But such cases are rare here in this country. Though well, maybe they run around and have parties. As we left the brakes behind, we got out upon a level pinion flat. Few cedars grew within the pinions. Deer runways and trails were thick. "'Boys, look at that,' said Jones. "'This is great lion country, the best I ever saw.' He pointed to the sunken, red, shapeless remains of two horses, and near them a ghastly scattering of bleached bones. "'A lion lair right here on the flat. Those two horses were killed early this morning.' see no signs of their carcasses having been covered with brush and dirt. I've got to learn lion lore over again, that's certain. As we paused at the head of the depression, which appeared to be a gap in the rim wall, filled with massed pinions and splintered piles of yellow stone, I caught Sounder going through some interesting moves. 
He stopped to smell a bush, then he lifted his head and electrified me with a great, deep-sounding bay. "'Hi there. Listen to that,' yelled Jones. "'What sounder got? Give him room. Don't run him down. Easy now, old dog. Easy, easy.' Sounder suddenly broke down a trail. Moe's howled, Don barked, and Teague let out his staccato yelp. They ran through the bush here, there, everywhere. Then all at once old Jude chimed in with her mellow voice, and Jones tumbled off his horse. "'By the Lord Harry, there's something here.' "'Here, Colonel, here's the brush,' Sounder smelt. "'And there's a sandy trail under it,' I called. "'There go Don and Teague down into the break,' cried Frank. "'They've got a hot scent.' Jones stooped over the place I designated to jerk up with a reddening face. As he flung himself onto the saddle, roared out, "'After Sounder! Old Tom! Old Tom! Old Tom!' We all heard Sounder, and at the moment of Jones' discovery, Mose got the scent and plunged ahead of us. "'Ay, ay, ay, ay!' yelled the colonel. Frank's sense bought forward like a white streak. Sounder called to us in irresistible bays, which Mose answered, and then crippled Jude bayed in baffled, impotent distress. The atmosphere was charged with that lion. As if by magic, the excitation communicated itself to all, and men, horses, and dogs reacted in accord. The ride through the forest had been a jaunt. This was a steeplechase, a mad, heedless, perilous, glorious race, and we had for a pacemaker a cowboy mounted on a tireless mustang. Always it seemed to me, while the wind rushed, the brush whipped, I saw Frank far ahead, sitting his saddle as if glued there, holding his reins loosely forward. To see him ride was a beautiful sight. Jones let out his Comanche yell at every dozen jumps, and Wallace sent back a thrilling wahoo. In the excitement, I again checked my horse, and when I remembered, I loosed the bridle. How the noble animal responded! The pace he settled into dazed me. I could hardly distinguish the deer trail down which he was thundering. I lost my comrades ahead, the pinion blurred in my sight. I only faintingly heard the hounds. It occurred to me we were making for the brakes, but I did not think of checking Satan. I thought only of flying on faster and faster. On, on, old fellow, stretch out. Never lose this race. We've got to be there at the finish, I called to Satan, and he seemed to understand and stretched lower, further, quicker. The brush pounded my legs and clutched and tore my clothes. The wind whistled, the pinion branches cut and whipped my face. Once I dodged to the left as Satan swerved to the right, with the result that I flew out of the saddle and crashed into a pinion tree, which marvelously brushed me back into the saddle. The wild yells and deep bays sounded nearer. Satan tripped and plunged down, throwing me as gracefully as an aerial tumbler wings his flight. I alighted in a bush. Without feeling a scratch or pain, as Satan recovered and ran past, I did not seek to make him stop, but getting a good grip on the pommel, I vaulted up again. Once more he raced like a wild mustang, and from nearer and nearer in front pealed the alluring sounds of the chase. Satan was creeping close to Wallace and Jones, with Frank looming white through the occasional pinions. Then all dropped out of sight to appear again suddenly. They had reached the first break. Soon I was upon it. Two deer ran out of the ravine, almost brushing my horse in the haste. Satan went down and up in a few giant strides. Only the narrow ridge separated us from another break. It was up and down, then for Satan, a work to which he manfully set himself. Occasionally I saw Wallace and Jones, but heard them oftener. All the time the breaks grew deeper, till finally Satan had to zigzag his way down and up. 
Discouragement fastened on me, when from the summit of the next ridge I saw Frank far down the break, with Jones and Wallace not a quarter of a mile away from him. I sent out a long, exultant yell as Satan crashed into the hard, dry wash in the bottom of the break. I knew from the way he quickened under me that he intended to overhaul somebody, perhaps because of the clear going or because my frenzy had cooled to a thrilling excitement which permitted detail, I saw clearly and distinctly the speeding horseman down the ravine. I picked out the smooth pieces of ground ahead, and with the slightest touch of the rein on his neck, guided Satan into them. How he ran! The light, quick beats of his hoofs were regular, pounding. Seeing Jones and Wallace sail high in the air, I knew they had jumped a ditch. Thus prepared, I managed to stick on when it yawned before me, and Satan, never slacking, leaped up and up, giving me a new swing. Dust began to settle in little clouds before me. Frank, far ahead, had turned his mustang up the side of the brake. Wallace, within hailing distance now, turned to wave me a hand. The rushing wind fairly sang in my ears. The walls of the brake were confused blurs of yellow and green. At every stride Satan seemed to swallow a rod of the white trail. Jones began to scale the ravine, heading up obliquely far on the side to of where Frank had vanished, and, as Wallace followed suit, I turned Satan, I caught Wallace at the summit, and we raced together out upon another flat of pinion. We heard Frank and Jones yelling in a way that caused us to spur our horses frantically. Spot, gleaming white near a clump of green pinions, was our guiding star. That last quarter of a mile was a ringing run, a ride to remember. As our mounts crashed back with stiff forelegs and haunches, Wallace and I leapt off and darted into the clump of pinions, whence issued a hair-raising melody of yells and barks. I saw Jones, then Frank, both waving their arms, when Mose and Sounder, running wildly aimlessly about, "'Look there!' rang in my ear, and Jones smashed me on the back with a blow which at any ordinary time would have laid me flat. In the low, stubby pinion tree, scarce twenty feet from us, was a tawny form. An enormous mountain lion, as large as an African lioness, stood planted with huge, round legs on two branches, and he faced us gloomily, neither frightened nor fierce. He watched the running dogs with pale yellow eyes, waved his massive head, and switching a long, black, tough tail. "'It's old Tom, sure as you're born, it's old Tom,' yelled Jones. "'There are no two lions like that in one country. Hold still now. Jude is here, and she'll see him. She'll show him to the other hounds. Hold still. We heard Jude coming at a fast pace for a lame dog, and we saw her presently running with her nose down for a moment, then up. She entered the clump of trees and bumped her nose against the pinion. Old Tom was in, and looked up like a dog that knew her business. The series of wild howls she broke into quickly brought Sounder and Mose to her side. They, too, saw the big lion not fifteen feet over their heads. We were all yelling and trying to talk at once, in some such state as the dogs. "'Here, Mose, come down out of that!' hoarsely shouted Jones. Mose had begun to climb the thick, many-branched low pinion tree. He paid not the slightest attention to Jones, who screamed and raged at him. "'Cover the lion!' cried he to me. "'Don't shoot unless he crouches to jump on me!' The little beaded front sight wavered slightly as I held my rifle leveled at the grim, snarling face, and out of the corner of my eye as it were, I saw Jones dash in under the lion and grasp Mose by the hind leg and haul him down. He broke from Jones and leaped again into the first low branch. His master then grasped the collar and carried him to where he stood and held him choking. 
Boys, we can't keep Tom up there. When he jumps, keep out of his way. Maybe we can chase him up a better tree. Old Tom suddenly left the branches, swinging violently and hitting the ground like a huge cat on springs. He bounded off, tail up, in a most ludicrous manner. His running, however, did not lack speed, for he quickly outdistanced the bursting hounds. A stampede for horses succeeded this move. I had difficulty in closing my camera, which I had forgotten until the last moment, and got behind the others. Satan sent the dust flying and the pinion branches crashing. Hardly had I time to bewail my ill luck in being left when I dashed out of a quick growth of trees to come upon my companions, all dismounted on the rim of the Grand Canyon. "'He's gone down. He's gone down,' raged Jones, stomping the ground. "'What luck! What miserable luck! But don't quit. Spread along the rim, boys, and look for him. Cougars can't fly. There's a break in the rim somewhere.' The rock wall on which we dizzily stood dropped straight down for a thousand feet to meet a long pinion-covered slope, which graded a mile to cut off into what must have been the second wall. We were far west of Clark's Trail now, and faced a point above where Kanab Canyon, a red gorge a mile deep, met the great canyon. As I ran along the rim, looking for a fissure or break, my gaze seemed impellingly drawn by the immensity of this thing I could not name, and for which I had no intelligible emotion. Two wahoos in the rear turned me back in double-quick time, and hastening by the horses I found the three men grouped at the head of a narrow break. He went down there. Wallace saw him around the base of that tottering crag. The break was wedge-shaped, with the sharp end toward the rim, and it descended so rapidly as to appear almost perpendicular. It was a long, steep slide of small weathered shale in a place that no man in his right senses would have ever considered going down, but Jones, designating Frank and me, said in his cool, quick voice, "'You fellows go down, take Jude and Sounder in leash. If you find his trail below along the wall, yell to us. Meanwhile, Wallace and I will hang over the rim and watch for him.' Going down, in one sense, was much easier than it had appeared. For the reason that once started, we moved on sliding beds of weathered stone. Each of us now had an avalanche for a steed. Frank forged ahead with a roar, and then, seeing danger below, tried to get out of the mass, but the stones were like quicksand. Every step he took sunk him in deeper. He grasped the smooth cliff to find holding impossible. The slide poured over a fall like so much water. He reached and caught a branch of a pinion, and lifting his feet up, hung on till the treacherous area of moving stones had passed. While I had been absorbed in his predicament, my avalanche augmented itself by slide on slide, perhaps loosened by his, and before I knew it, I was sailing down with ever-increasing momentum. The sensation was distinctly pleasant, and a certain spirit, before restrained in me, at last ran riot. The slide narrowed at the drop where Frank had jumped, and the stones poured over in the stream. I jumped also, but having a rifle in one hand, failed to hold, and plunged down into the slide again. My feet were held this time as in a vice. I kept myself upright and waited. Fortunately, the jumble of loose stones slowed and stopped enable me to crawl over to one side, where there was comparatively good footing. Below us, for fifty yards, was a sheet of rough stone, as bare as washed granite well could be. We slid down this in regular schoolboy fashion, and had reached another restricted neck in the fissure when a sliding crash above warned us that the avalanches had decided to move of their own free will. 
Only a fraction of a moment had we to find footing along the yellow cliff, when, with a crackling roar, the mass struck the slippery granite. If we had been on that slope, our lives would not have been worth a grain of dust, flying in clouds above us. Huge stones that had formed the bottom of the slides were shot ahead, and rolling, leaping, whizzed by us with frightful velocity, and the remainder groaned and growled its way down, to thunder over the second fall and die out in a distant rumble. The hounds had hung back, and were not easily coaxed down to us. From there on, down to the base of the gigantic cliff, we descended with little difficulty. "'We might meet the old gray cat anywhere along here,' said Frank. The wall of yellow limestone had shelves, ledges, fissures, and cracks, any one of which might have concealed a lion. On these places I turned dark, uneasy glances. It seemed to me events succeeded one another so rapidly that I had no time to think, to examine, to prepare. We were rushed from one sensation to another. "'Hey, look here,' said Frank. "'Here's his tracks.' Did you ever see the like of that? Certainly I had never fixed my eyes on such enormous cat tracks as appeared in the yellow dust at the base of the rim wall. The mere sight of them was sufficient to make a man tremble. Hold in the dogs, Frank, I called. Listen, I think I heard a yell. From far above came a yell, which, though thinned out by distance, was easily recognized as Jones's. We returned to the opening of the break, and throwing our heads back, looked up the slide to see him coming down. "'Wait for me! Wait for me! I saw the lion go in a cave. Wait for me!' With the same roar and crack and slide of rocks, as had attended our descent, Jones bore down on us. For an old man, it was a marvelous performance. He walked on the avalanche as though he wore seven-league boots, and presently, as we began to dodge whizzing boulders, he stepped down to us, whirling his coiled lasso. His jaw bulged out. A flash made fire in his cold eyes. Boys, we got old Tom in a corner. I worked along the rim north and looked over every place I could. Now, maybe you won't believe it, but I heard him pant. Yes, sir, he panted, like the tired lion he is. Well, presently I saw him lying along the base of the rim wall. His tongue was hanging out. You see, he's a heavy lion and not used to running long distances. Come on now. It's not far. Hold in the dogs. You there with the rifle, lead off, and keep your eyes peeled. Single file, we passed along the shadow of the great cliff. A wide trail had been worn in the dust. A lion runway, said Jones. Don't you smell the cat? Indeed, the strong odor of cat was very pronounced, and that, without the big, fresh tracks, made the skin of my face tighten and chill. As we turned a jutting point in the wall, a number of animals which I did not recognize plunged helter-skelter down the canyon slope. "'Rocky Mountain Sheep!' exclaimed Jones. "'Look, well, this is a discovery. I never heard of a bighorn in the canyon.' It was indicative of the strong grip old Tom had on us that we at once forgot the remarkable fact of coming upon these rare sheep in such a place. Jones halted us presently before a deep curve described by the rim wall, the extreme end of which terminated across the slope in an impassable projecting corner. See across there, boys? See that black hole? Old Tom's in there. What's your plan? queried the cowboy sharply. Wait. We'll slip up to get better lay of the land. We worked our way noiselessly along the rim wall curve for several hundred yards, and came to a halt again, this time with the splendid command of the situation. 
The trail ended abruptly at the dark cave, so menacingly staring at us, and the corner of the cliff had curled back upon itself. It was a box trap, with a drop at the end too great for any beast, a narrow slide of weathered stone running down, and the rim wall of trail. Old Tom would plainly be compelled to choose one of these directions if he left his cave. Frank, you and I will keep to the wall and stop near the scrub pinion, this side of the hole. If I rope him, I can use that tree. Then he turned to me. Are you to be dependent on here? Why? What do you want me to do? I demanded, and my whole breast seemed to sink in. You cut across the head of this slope and take up your position in the slide below the cave. Say, just by that big stone. From there you can command the cave, our position, and your own. Now, if it is necessary to kill this lion to save me or Frank, or, of course, yourself, can you be dependent upon to kill him? I felt a queer sensation about my heart, and a strange tightening of the skin upon my face. What a position for me to be placed in! For one instant I shook like a quavering aspen leaf. Then, because of the pride of a man, or perhaps inherited instincts, Cropping out of this perilous moment, I looked up and answered quietly, Yes, I will kill him. Old Tom is cornered, and he'll come out. He can run only two ways along this trail or down that slide. I'll take my stand by the scrub pinion there so I can get a hitch if I rope him. Frank, when I give you word, let the dogs go. Gray, you block the slide. If he makes at us, even if I do get my rope on him, kill him. Most likely he'll jump downhill. Then you'll have to kill him. Be quick. Now loose the hounds. Hi, hi, hi. I jumped into the narrow slide of weathered stones and looked up. Jones' centurion yell rose high above the clamor of the hounds. He whirled his lasso. A huge yellow form shot over the trail and hit the top of the slide with a crash. The lasso streaked out with arrowy swiftness, circled and snapped viciously close to old Tom's head. Kill him! Kill him! roared Jones. Then the lion leaped seemingly into the air above me. Instinctively, I raised my little automatic rifle. I seemed to hear a million bellowing reports. The tawny body, with its grim, snarling face, blurred in my sight. I heard a roar of sliding stones at my feet. I felt a rush of wind. I caught a confused glimpse of a whirling wheel of fur rolling down the slide. Then Jones and Franks were pounding on me and yelling, I know not what. From far above came floating down a long wahoo. I saw Wallace silhouetted against the blue sky, felt the hot barrel of my rifle, and shuddered at the bloody stones below me. Then, and only then, did I realize, with weakening legs, that old Tom had just jumped at me, and had jumped to his death. End of chapter 12《Chapter Thirteen of the Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. The Last of the Plainsmen by Zane Grey. Chapter Thirteen Singing Cliffs. Old Tom had rolled two hundred yards down the canyon, leaving a red trail and bits of fur behind him. When I had clambered down to the steep slide where he had lodged, Sounder and Jude had just decided he was no longer worth fighting, and were wagging their tails. Frank was shaking his head, and Jones, standing above the lion, lasso in hand, wore a disconsolate face. Oh, I wish I had got a rope on him. I reckon we'd be gathering up the pieces of you if you had, 
said Frank dryly. We skinned the old king on the rocky slope of his mighty throne, and then, beginning to feel the effects of severe exertion, we cut across the slope for the foot of the break. Once there, we gazed up in dismay. That break resembled a walk of life. How easy to slip down, how hard to climb. Even Frank, inured as he was to strenuous toil, began to swear and wipe his sweaty brow before we had made one-tenth of the ascent. It was particularly exasperating, not to mention the danger of it, to work a few feet up a slide and then feel it start to move. We had to climb in single file, which jeopardized the safety of those behind the leader. Sometimes we were all sliding at once, like boys on a pond, with the difference that we were in danger. Frank forged ahead, turning to yell now and then for us to dodge a cracking stone. Faithful old Jude could not get up in some places, so laying aside my rifle I carried her, and returned for the weapon. It became necessary presently to hide behind cliff projections to escape the avalanches started by Frank, and to wait till he had surmounted the break. Jones gave up completely several times, saying the exertion affected his heart. What with my rifle, my camera, and Jude, I could offer him no assistance, and was really in need of that myself when it seemed as if one more step would kill us. We reached the rim, and fell panting with labored chests and dripping skins. We could not speak. Jones had worn a pair of ordinary shoes without thick soles and nails, and it seemed well to speak of them in the past tense. They were split into ribbons and hung on by the laces. His feet were cut and bruised. On the way back to camp we encountered Mose and Don, coming out of the break where we had started, Sounder on the trail. The paws of both hounds were yellow with dust, which proved they had been down under the rim wall. Jones doubted not, in the least, that they had chased a lion. Upon examination, this break proved to be one of the two which Clark used for trails to his wild horse corral in the canyon. According to him, the distance separating them was five miles by the rim wall, and less than half that in a straight line. Therefore, we made for the point of the forest where it ended abruptly in the scrub oak. We got to camp a fatigued lot of men, horses, and dogs. Jones appeared particularly happy, and his first move, after dismounting, was to stretch out the lion's skin and measure it. Ten feet three inches and a half,' he sang out. "'Sure it do beat hell,' exclaimed Jim, in tones nearer to excitement than any I had ever heard him use. "'Old Tom beats by two inches any cougar I ever saw.' continued Jones. He must have weighed more than three hundred. We'll set about curing the hide. Jim, stretch it well on a tree, and we'll take a hand in peeling off the fat. All of the party worked on the cougar skin that afternoon. The gristle at the base of the neck, where it met the shoulders, was so tough and thick we could not scrape it thin. Jones said this particular spot was so well protected because in fighting cougars were most likely to bite and claw there. For that matter, the whole skin was tough tougher than leather, and when it dried, it pulled all the horseshoe nails out of the pine tree upon which we had it stretched. About time for the sun to set, I strolled along the rim wall to look into the canyon. I was beginning to feel something of its character, and had growing impressions. Dark purple smoke veiled the cliffs deep down between the mesas. I walked along to where points of cliff ran out like capes and peninsulas. All seemed cracked, wrinkled, scarred, and yellow with age, with shattered, toppling ruins of rocks. 
ready at a touch to go thundering down. I could not resist the temptation to crawl out to the farthest point, even though I shuddered over the yard-wide ridges. And when once seated on a bare promontory two hundred feet from the regular rim wall, I felt isolated, marooned. The sun, a liquid red globe, had just touched its underside to the pink cliffs of Utah, and fired a crimson flood of light over the wonderful mountains, plateaus, scrapements, mesas, domes, and turrets of the gorge. The rim wall of Powell's Plateau was a thin streak of fire, the timber above like grass of gold, and the long slopes below shaded from bright to dark. Points sublime, bold, and bare, ran out towards the plateau, jealously reaching for the sun. Vast tomb peeped over the saddle. The temple of Vishu lay bathed in vapory, shading clouds, and the Shinoa altar shone with rays of glory. The beginning of the wondrous transformation, the dropping of the day's curtain, was for me a rare and perfect moment, as the golden splendor of sunset sought out a peak or mesa or escarpment. I gave it a name to suit my fancy, and as flushing, fading its glory changed, sometimes I rechristened it. Jupiter's chariot, brazen-wheeled, stood ready to roll into the crowds. Cyrus's bed, all gold, shone from a tower of Babylon. Castor and Pollux clasped hands over a Styrian river. The spur of doom, a mountain shaft as red as hell, and inaccessible, insurmountable, lured with a strange light. Dusk, a bold black dome, was shrouded by the shadow of a giant mesa. The star of Bethlehem glittered from the brow of Point Sublime. The wraith fleecy feathered curtain of mist floated down among the ruins of castles and palaces like the ghosts of a goddess, veils of twilight, dim, dark ravines, mystic homes of specters, led into the awful valley of the shadow, clothed in purple night. Suddenly, as the first puff of the night wind fanned my cheek, a strange, sweet, low moaning and sighing came to my ears. I almost thought I was in a dream, but the canyon, now blood-red, was there in overwhelming reality, a profound, solemn, gloomy thing, but real. The wind blew stronger, and then I was listening to a sad, sweet song, which lulled as the wind lulled. I realized at once that the sound was caused by the wind blowing into the peculiar formations of the cliffs. It changed, softened, shaded, mellowed, but it was always sad. It rose from low, tremulous, sweetly quavering sighs to a sound like the last woeful, despairing wail of a woman. It was the song of the sea sirens and the music of the waves. It had the soft sough of the night wind in the trees and the haunting moan of lost spirits. With reluctance I turned my back to the gorgeous, changing spectacle of the canyon and crawled into the rim wall. At the narrow neck of stone, I peered over to look down into misty blue nothingness. That night Jones told stories of frightened hunters, and assuaged my mortification by saying buck fever was pardonable after the danger had passed, and especially so in my case, because of the great size and fame of old Tom. The worst case of buck fever I ever saw was on a buffalo hunt I had with a fellow named Williams, went on Jones. 
I was one of the scouts leading the wagon train west on the old Santa Fe Trail. This fellow, he said he was a big hunter and wanted to kill a buffalo, so I took him out. I saw a herd making over the prairie for a hollow where a brook ran, and by hard work got in ahead of them, picked out a position just below the edge of the bank, and we lay quiet, waiting. From the direction of the buffalo I calculated we'd be just about right to get a shot at no very long range. As it was, I suddenly heard thumps on the ground, and cautiously rising my head, saw a huge buffalo bull just over us, not fifteen feet up the bank. Whispered to Williams, For God's sake, don't shoot, don't move. The bull's fiery little eyes snapped, and he reared. I thought we were goners, for when a bull comes down on anything with his forefeet, it's done for. But he slowly settled back, perhaps doubtful. Then as another buffalo came along to the edge of the bank, luckily, a little way from us, the bull turned broadside, presenting a splendid target. Then I whispered to Williams, Now's your chance. Shoot. I waited for the shot, but none came. Looking at Williams, I saw that he was white and trembling. Big drops of sweat stood out on his brow, his teeth chattered, and his hands shook. He had forgotten he carried a rifle. That reminds me, said Frank. They tell a story over at Knob on a Dutchman named Schmidt. He was very fond of hunting, and I guess had pretty good success after deer and small game. One winter he was out on the pink cliffs with a Mormon named Schoonover, and they ran into a layman big grizzly track, fresh and wet. They trailed him to a clump of chaparral, and on going clear round it, found no tracks leading out. Schoonover, said Schmidt, commenced to sweat. They went back to the place where the trail led in, and there they were, great big silver-tipped tracks, bigger than hoss tracks, so fresh that water was oozing out of them. Schmidt said, Zeke, you go in and get him. I've took sick right now. Happy as we were over our chase of old Tom and our prospects, for Sounder, Jude, and Mose had seen a lion in a tree, we sought our blankets early. I lay watching the bright stars and listening to the roar of the wind in the pines. At intervals it lulled to a whisper, and then swelled to a roar, and then died away. Far off in the forest a coyote barked once. Time and time again, as I was gradually sinking into slumber, the sudden roar of the wind startled me. I imagined it was the crash of rolling weathered stone and I saw again that huge, outspread, flying lion above me. I awoke some time later to find Mose had sought the warmth of my side, and he lay so near my arm that I reached out and covered him with the end of the blanket. I used to break the wind. It was very cold, and the time must have been very late, for the wind had died down, and I heard not a tinkle from the hobbled horses. The absence of the cowbell music gave me a sense of loneliness, for without it the silence of the great forest was a thing to be felt. This oppressiveness, however, was broken by a far distant cry, unlike any sound I had ever heard. Not sure of myself, I freed my ears from the blanketed hood and listened. It came again a wild cry that made me think first of a lost child, and then of the morning wolf of the north. It must have been a long distance off in the forest. An interval of some moments passed, then it peeked out again, nearer this time, 
and so human that it startled me. Mose raised his head and growled low in his throat, and sniffed the keen air. "'Jones! Jones!' called, reaching over to touch the old hunter. He woke at once, with the clear-headedness of the light-sleeper. "'I heard the cry of some beast,' I said, "'and it was so weird, so strange, I want to know what it was.' Such a long silence ensued that I began to despair of hearing the cry again, when, with a suddenness which straightened the hair on my head, a wailing shriek, exactly like a despairing woman might give in death agony, split the night silence. It seemed right on us. "'Cougar! Cougar!' exclaimed Jones. Well, "'What's up?' queried Frank, awakened by the dogs. Their howling roused the rest of the party, and no doubt scared the cougar for his womanish scream was not repeated. Then Jones got up and gathered his blankets in a roll. "'Where are you using for now?' asked Frank sleepily. "'I think that cougar just came up over the rim on a scouting hunt, and I'm going to go down to the head of the trail and stay there till morning. If he returns that way, I'll put him up a tree.' With this he unchained Sounder and Don, and stalked off under the trees, looking like an Indian. Once the deep bay of Sounder rang out, Jones's sharp command followed, and then the familiar silence encompassed the forest and was broken no more. When I awoke, all was gray except toward the canyon, where the little bit of sky I saw through the pines glowed a delicate pink. I crawled out on the instant, got into my boots and coat, and kicked up the smoldering fire. Jim heard me and said, "'Sure, you're up early.' I'm going to see the sunrise from the north rim of the Grand Canyon, he said, and knew when I spoke that very few men out of all the millions of travelers had ever seen this, probably the most surpassingly beautiful pageant in the world. At most, only a few geologists, scientists, perhaps an artist or two, and horse wranglers, hunters, and prospectors have ever reached the rim on the north side, and these men, crossing from Bright Angel or Mystic Spring Trails on the south rim, seldom or never got beyond Powell's Plateau. The frost cracked under my boots like frail ice, and the bluebells peeked wanly from the white. When I reached the head of Clark's trail, it was just daylight, and there, under a pine, I found Jones rolled in his blankets with Sounder and Mose asleep beside him. I turned without disturbing him, and went along the edge of the forest, but back a little distance from the rim wall. I saw deer off in the woods, and tarrying, watched them throw up graceful heads and look and listen. The soft pink glow through the pines deepened to rose, and suddenly I caught a point of red fire. Then I hurried to the place I had named Singing Cliffs, and keeping my eyes fast on the stone beneath me, crawled out on the very furthest point, drew a long deep breath, and looked eastward. The awfulness of sudden death and the glory of heaven stunned me. The thing that had been mystery at twilight lay clear, pure, open, in the rosy hue of dawn. Out of the gates of the morning poured a light which glorified the palaces and pyramids, purged and purified the afternoon's inscrutable cliffs, swept away the shadows of the mesas, and bathed that broad, deep world of mighty mountains, stately spars of rock, sculptured cathedrals, and alabaster terraces in an artist's dream of color. A pearl from heaven had burst, flinging its heart of fire into this chasm. 
a stream of opal flowed out of the sun to touch each peak mesa dome parapet temple and tower cliff and cleft into the new-born life of another day i sat here for a long time and knew that every second the scene changed yet i could not tell how i knew i sat high over a hole of broken splintered barren mountains i knew i could see a hundred miles of the length of it and eighteen miles of the width of it and a mile of the depth of it and the shafts and ray of rose light on a million glancing many-hued surfaces at once but that knowledge was no help to me i repeated a lot of meaningless superlatives to myself and i found words inadequate and superfluous the spectacle was too elusive and too great it was life and death heaven and hell i tried to call up former favored views of mountain and sea so as to compare them with this but the memory pictures refused to come even with my eyes closed then i returned to camp with unsettled troubled mind and was silent wondering at the strange feeling burning within me jones talked about a visitor of the night before and said the trail near where he had slept showed only one cougar track and that led down to the canyon it had surely been made he thought by the beast we had heard jones signified his intention of chaining several of the hounds for the next few nights at the head of this trail so if the cougar came up they would send him and let us know from which it was evident that to chase a lion bound into the canyon and one bound out were two different things the day passed lazily with all of us resting on the warm fragrant pine needle beds or mending a rent in a coat or working on some camp task impossible of commission on exciting days about four o'clock i took my little rifle and walked off through the woods in the direction of the carcass where i had seen the gray wolf thinking it best to make a wide detour so as to face the wind i circled till i felt the breeze was favorable to my enterprise and then cautiously approached the hollow where the dead horse lay indian fashion i slipped from tree to tree a mode of forest travel not without its fascination and effectiveness till i reached the height of a knoll beyond which i made sure was my objective point on peeping out from behind the last pine i found i had calculated pretty well for there was the hollow the big windfall with its round starfish-shaped roots exposed to the bright sun and near that the carcass sure enough pulling hard at it was the gray white wolf i recognized as my loafer but he presented an exceedingly difficult shot backing down the ridge i found a little way to come up behind another tree from which i soon shifted to a fallen pine over this i peeped to get a splendid view of the wolf he had stopped tugging at the horse and stood with his nose in the air surely he could not have scented me for the wind was strong from him to me neither could he have heard my soft footfalls on the pine needles nevertheless he was suspicious loath to spoil the picture he made i risked a chance and waited besides though i prided myself on being able to take a fair aim i had no great hope that i could hit him at such a distance presently he returned to his feeding but not for long he soon raised his fine pointed head and trotted away a few yards stopped to sniff again then went back to his gruesome work at this juncture i noiselessly projected my rifle barrel over the log 
I had not, however, gotten the sights in line with him when he trotted away reluctantly and ascended the knoll on his side of the hollow. I lost him, and had just begun sourly to call myself a mollycoddle hunter. When he reappeared, he halted in an open glade on the very crest of the knoll and stood still as a statue-wolf, a white, inspiring target against a dark green background. I could not stifle a rush of feeling, for I was a lover of the beautiful first, and a hunter secondly. But I steadied down as the front sight moved into the notch through which I saw the black and white of his shoulder. Spang! How the little Remington sang! I watched closely, ready to send five more missiles after the gray beast. He jumped spasmodically, in a half-curve, high in the air with a loosely hanging head, then dropped in a heap. I yelled like a boy, ran down the hill up the other side of the hollow, to find him stretched out dead, a small hole in his shoulder where the bullet had entered, a great one where it had come out. The job I made of skinning him lacked some hundred degrees of perfection of my shot, but I accomplished it and returned to camp in triumph. "'Sure, I know you'd blunk him,' said Jim very much pleased. I shot one the other day same way, when he was feeding off a dead horse. Now that's a fine skin. Sure you cut through once or twice, but he's only half loafer. The other half is plain coyote. That accounts for his feeding on dead meat. My naturalist host and my scientific friend both remarked somewhat grumpily that I seemed to get the best of all the good things. I might have retaliated that I certainly had gotten the worst of all the bad jokes, but, being generously happy over my prize, merely remarked, If you want fame or wealth or wolves, go out and hunt for them. Five o'clock supper left a good margin of day in which my thoughts reverted to the canyon. I watched the purple shadows stealing out of their caverns and rolling up about the base of the mesas. Jones came over to where I stood, and I persuaded him to walk with me along the rim wall. Twilight had stealthily advanced when we reached the singing cliffs, and we did not go out upon my promontory, but chose a more comfortable one nearer the wall. The night breeze had not sprung up yet, so the music of the cliffs was hushed. You cannot accept the theory of erosion to account for this chasm? I asked my companion, referring to a former conversation. A can for part of it. But what stumps me is the mountain range three thousand feet high, crossing the desert and the canyon just above where we crossed the river. How did the river cut through that without the help of a split or earthquake? I'll admit that is a poser to me as well as to you, but I suppose Wallace could explain it as erosion. He claims this whole western country was once under water except the tips of the Sierra Nevada mountains. There came an uplift of the earth's crust, and the great inland sea began to run out, presumably by way of the Colorado. In so doing, it cut out the upper canyon, this gorge eighteen miles wide. Then came a second uplift, giving the river a much greater impetus toward the sea, which cut out the second or marble canyon. Now as to the mountain range crossing the canyon at right angles, it must have come with the second uplift. If so, did it dam the river back into another inland sea? 
and then wear down into that red perpendicular gorge we remember so well? Or was there a great break in the fold of granite, which let the river continue on its way? Or was there at that particular point a softer stone like this limestone here, which erodes easily? You must ask somebody wiser than I. Well, let's not perplex our minds with its origin. It is, and that's enough for my mind. Ah, listen. Now you will hear my singing cliffs. From the darkening shadows, murmurs rose on the softly rising wind. This strange music had a depressing influence, but it did not fill the heart with sorrow, only touched it lightly. And when, with the dying breeze, the song died away, it left the lonely crags lonelier for its death. The last rosy gleam faded from the tip of Point Sublime, and as if that were a signal, and all the clefts and canyons below, purple, shadowy clouds, marshaled their forces and began to sweep upon the battlements, to swing colossal wings into amphitheaters where gods might have warred, slowly to enclose the magical sentinels. Night intervened, and a moving, changing, silent chaos pulsated under the bright stars. How infinite all this is! How impossible to understand! I exclaimed. To me, it's very simple, replied my comrade. The world is strange, but this canyon, why, we can see it all. I can't make out why people fuss over it. I only feel peace. It's only bold and beautiful, serene and silent. With the words of this quiet old plainsman, my sentimental passion shrank to the true appreciation of the scene. Self passed out of the recurring soft strains of cliff song. I had been reveling in a species of indulgence, imagining I was a great lover of nature, building poetical illusions over storm-beaten peaks. The truth told by one who had lived fifty years in the solitudes among the rugged mountains under the dark trees, and by the signs of the lonely streams, was a simple interpretation of a spirit in harmony with the bold, the beautiful, the serene, the silent. He meant the Grand Canyon was only a mood of nature, a bold promise, a beautiful record. He meant that mountains had sifted away in its dust. Yet the canyon was young. Man was nothing. So let him be humble. This cataclysm of the earth, this playground of a river, was not indestructible. It was only inevitable. As inevitable as nature itself. Millions of years in the bygone ages, it had lain serene under a live moon. It would bask silent under a rayless sun, in the outward edge of time. It taught simplicity, serenity, peace. The eye that saw only the strife, the war, the decay, the ruin, or only the glory and the tragedy, saw not all the truth. It spoke simply, though its words were grand. My spirit is the spirit of time of eternity, of God. Man is little, vain, vaunting. Listen. Tomorrow he shall be gone. Peace, peace. End of chapter 13
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.